Funding for Think comes from SMU Master of Liberal Studies. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. If humans are so smart, why do we sometimes make such bad decisions when it comes to love and money? The classic view of decision-making favored by some economists is that our big brains should allow us to be eminently rational. But that view ignores the reality that those big brains of ours are the products of evolution and date back to a time in which the challenges we faced were very different from those in modern life. In fact, as my guest today will explain, while we feel like the same person every time we make a choice, our brains are actually one of a number in our brains are actually one of a number of subcells whose priorities may differ wildly depending on the situation. Douglas T. Kenrick is professor of psychology at Arizona State University. He joins us this afternoon from the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona. And he is the co-author, along with Vladis Griskevicius, of The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. Doug, welcome back to Think. Hi, Chris. Good to be here. You write that we... Oh, go go ahead, please. I was just going to say it's Griskevicius, not a very easy name to pronounce. Thank you very much. I would not have guessed that correctly, so I I appreciate the correction. Um, You write that we are born to be biased, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. So uh, for a long time, bias has had a bad name in the field of psychology and uh, in economics, Um, there's uh, a group called the behavioral economists who came along to attack that the the classic model of rationality. Uh, I'll go into a little more detail on what you just said. My favorite model for that is Joseph Patrick Kennedy, who was the father of John F. Kennedy. And he was the kind of ultimate rational man. He made a series of self-serving, shrewd decisions throughout his life. You know, he was a bank president by the time he was something like 25. When the Boston Globe interviewed him, he said, that's not good enough. I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30, which meant a lot more back in in, around 1912, whenever he said it, than it means now. Uh, And he made good on that. He then went on to uh, start becoming a Wall Street investor. And he got out of the Wall Street uh, investments just as the market was about to crash. He helped found RKO Pictures with something like $30 million in assets. Uh, He was ready to start importing liquor the moment (laughs) that that, uh, it became legal in the United States again. And in his personal life, he was also eminently kind of shrewd and self-serving. He had an affair with Gloria Swanson, who was the the beautiful movie actress uh, uh, during the silent era. And when her movie went over budget, he dropped her and he left her holding the bill for the uh, for the movie. Uh, and then he went on to become the ambassador to Britain. And he plotted to have his children become, he wanted his oldest son to become president of the United States. So he's sort of the classic model, the Wall Street model. He makes very shrewd decisions. But then comes his, the next generation, uh, which is uh, John. Now, John got to be president, but actually Joseph before him, the the eldest, handsome, charming son, was all set to come home from World War II after he'd flown sufficient numbers of missions to be a decorated hero. And he decides to volunteer for another crazy mission to fly a plane full of explosives straight at the German lines. Well, the outcome was perhaps predictable. He didn't get to be president of the United States. He ended up dead. 
then JFK was, was assassinated. But while he was president, he also made some decisions that uh, people at the time later, when it came public, thought, well, these were not bright decisions. He, for example, used the Secret Service to cover for him while he brought beautiful women into the White House so that his wife wouldn't find out. And that was kind of held against him his, by historians and uh, Republicans. And uh, in fact, many of his own followers were very unhappy with that kind of story. Uh, and then uh, he, his brother Teddy has the famous incident at Chappaquiddick where he's out drinking one night with some young woman. He drives his car off a bridge. The woman drowns. And there's a whole bunch of those stories. The next generation was even worse. Bobby Kennedy's sons, one of them ended up killing himself on a ski slope playing football uh, and goes, predictably perhaps, goes crashing into a tree. Uh, another one was found dead in a hotel in Miami from a drug overdose. So that next generation kind of supports a view that psychologists and behavioral economists like to tout about, and we like to tell students about that, and there's a lot of books out there. You know, Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely have some very interesting books on the, the limitations of human decision-making. In some ways, we're kind of not like the, the sort of the econs, the bright uh, Joe Kennedy types, but a lot of our decisions seem much more kind of moronic, really. We're just very limited. We don't pay attention to all the information. We go with the last thing that popped into our mind. And so that's been the view that has been very popular for the last couple of decades. In fact, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for promoting that view and leading economists to think about the fact that, well, maybe we're not so bright after all. So those are the two prevailing views. One, you know, we're Wall Street bankers. The other one, we're kind of dimwit. Uh, and what we argue in this book is that, well, there's a third view. And the third view is based upon thinking about humans in evolutionary terms, which, of course, this has become the rage in the last, you know, couple of decades or so. And it's becoming increasingly popular to try to import ideas, ideas that we use to understand other animals, to understand ourselves as animals. And mostly we've thought about how that applies to things like mating, you know, men and women are very different in their mate choice and so forth. But in the last few years, we've begun to think about how it applies to the way we think, that the brain is a product of evolution, and those decisions that we make are also products of evolution. So on, on this view that we argue in this book, uh, as you stated it before, a lot of what appear to be kind of dumb, biased decisions are actually not so dumb when you think about them in evolutionary terms. They might have served our ancestors well. So I'll give you one example. Uh, there's a phenomenon called loss aversion. And that economists love to kind of laugh about this one. Uh, there's $100 is worth $100 to an economist, to a rational economist, whether, whether you've just spent it or whether it's, it's coming in, uh, and it should be valued about the same to you. But it turns out that what Daniel Kahneman showed is that, well, it turns out that people value a lost $100 a lot more than they value a gained $100 and will do a lot of kind of neurotic things to avoid a situation in which they might lose something. Now, a funny thing about loss aversion is that Laurie Santos, uh, who is a psychologist who studies uh, capuchin monkeys, I believe, uh, she finds loss aversion in monkeys. Now, what's it doing if it's so irrational? Why is it found so commonly in humans and in, in monkeys? Well, one possible evolutionary spin on this is that most of our ancestors, like most of those monkeys' ancestors, they live close to the edge. Okay, most people didn't have; they didn't even have refrigerators, and so uh, they certainly weren't able to store large amounts of food. 
and often there were droughts or floods or various other things that caused famine. And our ancestors were very close to the edge. If you're very close to the edge, you don't want to go a few pounds light on the amount that you catch this week. So a loss really does. It can mean the difference between life and death. Whereas a little bit of extra meat, mm, that's not necessarily going to, it's good, but it's not necessarily going to mean the difference between life and death. So a loss should be worth more. But now the part that, that we've been playing with that I think is kind of fun and that, that shows the power of this perspective is that we've been trying to think about how can these biases that we've inherited from our ancestors, do they turn on and off in adaptive ways? And so I'll give you a, a prototypical sort of a study that we conduct. And this one was done by Jessica Lee, who's now a, a marketing professor at the University of Kansas, uh, along with uh, several of our other colleagues. And in that experiment, we looked at loss aversion. So we go back to this thing where we ask people, how do you feel when you lose $100 or gain $100? And we asked them a number of different gains and losses. And we found that the standard thing, that people seem to put more psychological weight on a loss than on a gain. Then what we did is we manipulated what we call fundamental motives related to those subcells that you just mentioned. Our assumption is that, that again, instead of there being one banker, one Joe Kennedy banker inside your head, or mm -hmm. one dim-witted kind of, you know, uh, person doing silly things inside your head. There's actually a, a number of different little subdivisions, d little executive systems that are in charge of different kinds of things. What counts as a loss and what counts as a gain? Well, that really depends upon what are we talking about? Are we talking about trying to find a mate? Are we talking about trying to take care of my children? Are we talking about try to keep a friend or make a friend? Or are we trying to talk about trading stock options uh, on Wall Street? All of those things would, when you're dealing with strangers and you're trading, which our ancestors did a lot of, well, then you want to be extremely careful and extremely selfish. When, you, when you're dealing with your family members, though, well, for example, my son, he shares half my genes. So from an evolutionary perspective, if I give him $100, I've really only given him $50 hmm. because the half of it's gone to myself. So we think about that and then we start to play around with, okay, let's activate these different subcells and see what does it do to the biases. So we bring people into the laboratory and we have them first imagine themselves in a situation that's likely to trigger one of those executive subsystems. So for example, uh, the fear system. Imagine you're in your house. It's late at night. It's dark. There's nobody else there. And you hear some funny sounds outside, kind of funny noises. You try to put them out of your mind. You go back to reading. You turn the light out. And then you hear the noises again. And then it becomes kind of clearer and clearer that someone actually is trying to break into your house. Now it sounds like they're in your house. Now you're hearing footsteps on the stairs. You reach for the phone. The phone is dead. Then all of a sudden your door opens and you hear an evil cackle. Okay, so that tends to give people the creeps and put them activate what we call their self-protection subself. Uh, in another condition, we have people imagine you've gone on vacation. Uh, when we were writing this, I was thinking of when I was a young man and went to a beach at, in Mexico and met some very attractive uh, woman from another country. And you imagine you've met somebody uh, who you're very attracted to, you're very simpatico, you get along with one another, you start looking into one another's eyes and sharing all kinds of details. The, the day goes on and you find excuses to stay together and then you have dinner together. 
And it ends with this very romantic kiss on the beach. So that activates our mate acquisition subself, we would call it. Now, after these parts of your, different parts of different subjects' minds are activated, we ask them to make those decisions about gains and losses. And what we find is something that makes actual sense, that suggests that these biases are not silly. When we're afraid, everybody becomes more loss-averse. The losses really stand out. And that kind of makes sense. If, you are, if the bad guys are up on the hill, in the ancestral times, the bad guys often were up on the hill. Sometimes in modern times, the bad guys are up on the hill. Under those circumstances, you don't want to stand out from the rest of the group. You want to, you know, you want to be, and you also don't want to be uh, making risky choices. You want to be very careful. Uh, and we found lots of different things. Uh, in our other experiments, we find that people are more conforming when they're afraid. Uh, they're more agreeable towards other people. Uh, and they're also more loss-averse. They're worried about risk. They're careful, okay? They're careful and want to be connected to their group and, and not do anything silly. But now, what about when you're in a mating frame of mind? Well, here, this is where, again, the evolutionary theory kind of pitches in. From an evolutionary perspective, there's this very powerful theory called differential parental investment. What it basically means is that in many animal species, the females, usually the females, but not always, contribute way more than the males. The males contribute less. When that happens, like let's take the peacock, where the peacock male doesn't do anything, as far as I know, to take help the female with the offspring. In species like that, where the male only contributes his genes, the male shows off. He flashes his feathers, and, and the female gets to check them out and say, I don't know, maybe you, maybe you. The female is very selective under those circumstances because she has a lot to lose. He has a lot less to lose. Now, we found that that's very powerful, and uh, I'll get to the, do I have time to get to the punchline of this? Or no, hold on a second. That's our entire first segment, so we'll come back in just okay. a minute. My guest is Douglas T. Kenrick, professor of psychology at Arizona State University and author of the new book, The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. We'll resume the conversation in about two minutes. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program, accepting applications for this January to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu slash mls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Douglas T. Kenrick, professor of psychology at Arizona State University and co-author of the new book, The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Okay, Doug, as we left off, we had the peacocks strutting around, the peahens being very, very choosy. Right. Uh, and so, again, to remind you that the experiment, we were asking people how they felt about various gains and losses. And when people are afraid, everybody's more loss averse. Now, what happens when people are put in a mating frame of mind? Well, now men and women act very differently. The women are a little bit more reticent. They're more careful. And in fact, we found in a number of experiments that in a mating frame of mind, females 
they become nicer. They become more uh, publicly altruistic. They kind of show their nice side, but they also become more conforming. They don't try to stand out. What we found in a number of experiences is that men take a lot of risks. They try to stand out. They disagree with the other group members. They do more conspicuous consumption. They're more likely to, I heard one of your sponsors is Mercedes-Benz of Plano. They're more likely to think about going out and buying that Mercedes when they're in a mating frame of mind. Uh, and uh, predictably, what we found is that men in a mating frame of mind don't show loss aversion at all. In mm. fact, they show the reverse. Whereas everybody's usually worried about losing $100 more than gaining. A guy in a mating frame of mind, he's thinking about the gains. He's not even worried at all about the losses. So again, what seems like economic biases, what we've told students for years and readers of you know, books on economic uh, psychology are irrational biases. Well, really, they're not. They're kind of finely tuned in a functional way. So, Doug, acquiring a mate and keeping a mate, as anyone who's ever been married knows, are two very different yes, things. How exactly. how do our sub-selves change when we are focused on hanging on to that relationship? It, well, that's, that's a great question. Certainly, when <clears throat> now the sexes are in, a, are in the same game, when you want to keep a mate, okay, you don't want, if you're a guy, you don't want to be flashing your money around, throwing money, you know, this kind of thing, being a kind of a wild party animal and uh, a peacock. Once you've found a, a mate, uh, humans are a little different than peacocks in that we tend to bond, if not for life, for a number of years with one another and sometimes for life. And so once a guy gets into a relationship, we would expect him to start m making different economic decisions. And in fact, uh, we haven't published this data yet, but Jessica Lee has some uh, data, uh, which we're working on right now, that suggests in, in several different studies that in fact, just as, as you'd expect, men in relationships, in long-term relationships, are either married or, com or engaged or committed, uh, they they do not respond to a mating. Th their mating subself does not start to go out and want to sort of become really risky. In fact, uh, they become mating actually makes the males a little bit more risky. There's something funny we found, and we can't quite figure out what's going on with it. Uh, we're trying to work to figure this out. Women who are married or in a long-term relationship, when they think about mating, they actually become more risky. And that's one we're still trying to puzzle out what the answer to that is. that, But the, the men do just what you'd expect. They become more careful when they're in a relationship. 1-800. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. No, I was just going to say that, that it, 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 it goes back to your point that keeping a mate, there's a totally different sub-self that's in charge, of keeping a, in charge of keeping a mate or finding a mate. And if the finding a mate one is still too active, you're going to have a hard time keeping your mate. Yeah, certainly. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Henry in the Colony. Hi, Henry. Hi, how are you all? Great, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to have a, had a couple comments about uh, loss aversion versus uh, casinos, um, how obviously time and time again we've proven that, you know, a $100 lost is you know worth more than a $100 gained, but yet, you know, Las Vegas still thrives and same thing with a lotto. I think a lot of that has to do with we're really, really good at rationalizing these things. And then also another facet of that I want the speaker to talk about is anticipated rewards are usually favored more in our brains. So they think they're going to win. They think they're going to win. They think they're going to win. And that 
is what prods them to keep playing. And then lastly, uh, I wanted to, to touch on uh, affiliations, like we were talking about brooding and peacocking and things, and, and if he has anything to say about how men, particularly in Texas and the South, whatever, uh, like to pick up, say, a football team specifically, and then sometimes they'll, like, go to blows or, like, even, you know, fight to the death over something as trivial as, you know, my football team were. Well, we, that's a lot that we, you put on the table there, Henry, and I appreciate your call. Let's um, let's have Doug take take a crack at all that. Okay, let me start with, I, th- I think it's uh, interesting, his observation that certainly men do identify we have a powerful tendency to identify with a, a tribal grouping, uh, even to the point where it seems irrational, you know, to identify with your, your sports team. Uh, and there's some interesting research that shows that we do that more when we feel kind of threatened or put down. My colleague Bob Cialdini has some interesting research on that. Uh, on the first question of, you know, the whole Las Vegas or whatever, or the gambling casino kind of thing. Now, I'm an old man with a young uh, child and a, and a couple of grandchildren, and so uh, I don't go hang out in casinos, casinos much. But I do remember once when I was a younger guy, one of our students was a very beautiful woman who worked in a casino. And she said that, in fact, one of the things that they did is they encouraged, they would hire very attractive women to go around the casinos and offer these guys free drinks and so forth. And uh, I don't know whether that still happens Uh, but to the extent to which there is kind of an association between Las Vegas and kind of sexy behavior and so forth, even though it turns out there's a lot more men in Las Vegas than women. Mm. Uh, But uh, my suspicion is the casino owners probably try to do whatever they can to trigger the mate acquisition subself in those young guys. And, and as, to be risky. as to the question of um, you write about someone in the book who uh, could have been putting away a pretty nice nest egg, but continued playing the lottery instead um, and fantasizing about the day that that he might strike it rich. Right, so that's a really good that's a, a these sub selves. They come online at different times of our lives uh, and they also vary how powerful each one of them is and how they act partially depends upon the environment that we grew up in. So again, another powerful biological theory is called life history theory. Uh, how, do you, how does any animal allocate its precious resources throughout its lifespan? Should they start reproducing early? Some mammals start having uh, offspring within a month. Others wait 20 years, like elephants or humans wait a long time. Uh, now, how do you decide within a species, there's also variations, Uh, sometimes an animal decides to start, think about human beings. Some kids get pregnant in high school. Uh, Some wait till they're 35 years old and they, you know, have their law degree or their PhD before they have their first child. Uh, And what's the difference between those folks? Well, one of the things that my colleague Vlad Griskevichis and uh, some of our other uh, colleagues have been investigating is how that applies to economic decision-making, and, and lots of other parts of life. And, and one of the things is there's a distinction between, in humans, between a fast versus a slow life history. Some of us are more elephant-like than, uh, you know, than others, right? Uh, and the, the predictor of that seems to be, what was it like when you were, during the first few years of your life, if you lived in a middle-class or an upper-class environment and it was predictable, then it appears that people now, when people feel threatened and they, you know, people who from middle class backgrounds or upper class backgrounds, they become more careful and more conservative in their decision making. 
But the opposite happens for people who come from poorer backgrounds. And uh, the guy that we describe in the, in the uh, textbook is a, uh, he's a Hispanic guy in New York who works as a, um, works in a, uh, as a management. He's a building super, a, right? Building a super. Yes, mm-hmm. that's, that's the word. I was trying to come back to my New York early child to remember <laughs> the name super, the super. He's a super in a building. And uh, so he probably doesn't make a ton of money, but he yet, uh, according to Vlad, he spends $30,000 a year on lottery tickets. So he's putting, he's put his savings into the lottery tickets. Uh, now, what, what I would guess about him is that he doesn't come from a, an upper middle class environment. He comes from an environment that's, that's poor. If you come from an environment where, where the future is uncertain, well, then it doesn't necessarily make sense to wait a really long time. In fact, we find the same thing in the animal kingdom. When there's a a long drought or some sort of threatening environmental event, sometimes you'll find that animals and plants start reproducing now because it's kind of like there might not be a future. And so there's there's differences in terms of future orientation versus non-future orientation. And uh, some of us are more likely to play that fast game, to want to spend our resources early, to invest them in finding mates and uh, have children early. And others, again, are playing a slower life history. You said that anytime we experience a persistent desire for something we know we can't afford, we can almost always trace that desire back to one of our subselves. So if I have like a perfectly adequate wardrobe to pr- protect me from the elements, but I want a killer pair of shoes, I might be looking for status from my girlfriends or I might be looking to attract a mate, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Right. So that's sort of interesting, uh, Vlad and his co- uh, one of his colleagues, Christina Durante, who is at uh, UT uh, San Antonio have done some research looking at how women's decisions about purchasing uh, various kinds of products are linked to some of these biological factors. One of the ones that's interesting is that uh, ovulation seems to pop in here. Now, most women don't know when they're ovulating. In fact, if you wanted to get pregnant, you have to keep your temperature every day just to try to tell, am I ovulating? There's even little tests that, that you can take to tell whether you're ovulating or not. But when researchers uh, in psychology do this, they can basically, they can track back from a woman's next period to tell whether she was in her ovulatory phase and then give her uh, one of these tests. And what they found is that when women are in the ovulatory phase, now let me just give a wider perspective. Ovulation is the time when a woman is most likely to become pregnant, uh, when her hormones are basically driving her to think about, you know, uh, having having offspring, not necessarily having offspring, but mating at that point. And at that time of the month, women are more likely to engage in conspicuous consumptions, to buy kind of uh, conspicuous in a kind of a sexy way. Uh, And if I recall this correctly, I believe that one of the things that also predicts that is whether or not they're aware of the other local attractive women. If a woman is ovulating and thinking about the other attractive competitors out there, she's more likely to go out and buy those flashy clothes. Hmm. It's probably not the only reason why. There's a, women's conspicuous consumption and men's conspicuous consumption seem to be two different things. As you pointed out, uh, there's Jill Sunday, who's also at UTSA, who's done research on this. Uh, men and women's conspicuous consumption for, for Women, it seems to be, as you pointed out, more aimed at other women, kind of showing relative status over those other women. For men, it's a different story. Conspicuous consumption seems to be linked to mating motivation. 
uh, and in fact, it's more likely. Guys who spend, who buy the flashy car, so say you've got a certain amount of money to spend, you can choose between a hybrid and a flashy sports car. Uh, well, guys who are kind of short term, the fast guys, the guys who, um, the playboys, the ones, you know, the kind of the handsome, charming young guys in particular, uh, they're likely to want to go buy that flashy sports car when they're thinking about a mating frame of mind, whereas those more kind of the slow guys, not so much. Uh, and for women, it doesn't appear that women's mating strategy doesn't lead them. Fast women don't go out and want to buy fancy cars, okay? And <laughs> so, this, again, it's two different, two different psychologies linked to the different mating games that men and women are playing that are that help us understand how they spend money. Sometimes, Doug, we are overconfident in assessing our prospects for triumphing over adversity. What is the advantage of thinking that way when it might lead us to take bigger risks than, than we otherwise would? Right. So there is some, some research that uh, recently came out by Dominic Johnson and his colleagues over in Britain. And they reviewed a, a number of different findings uh, and I think produced some new findings of their own that suggested that overconfidence actually works, <laughs> that people who are overconfident tend to do better in life. They tend to rise up higher in the social hierarchy. Uh, overconfidence here being defined by, if I ask you the question of, how good do you think I am at whatever it is that I'm doing? And you say, yeah, well, he's about a five on a 10-point scale. Uh, if I tell him, if I say I'm a five, if I'm accurate and say, yes, I'm only a five on a 10-point scale, then I'm not going to go out there and try to take the world by the horns. On the other hand, if I think I'm an eight, well, then I'm going to go out and do, you know, all kinds of crazy things. In the book, we talk about MC Hammer. <laughs> uh, and we don't talk about him in this context, but here's a great example. This is a kid, he grew up in the projects with like seven kids in a family and a single mom. And he was quite poor. And yet, at a very early age, he was out there. He would bring you know, his boom box to the stadium, and he'd dance around outside and get contributions. And in fact, some of the local baseball players noticed him. How he came up with the term uh, MC Hammer is that someone compared him to a, a, a baseball player, Hank Aaron, who was called the Hammer. Uh, one of the baseball players gave him that nickname, and he got, they made him a bat boy for the team. And then, when he wanted to become a rapper and started a, uh, producing his own music, some of the wealthy baseball players invested in this guy, and he became a multimillionaire. <laughs> he also lost a lot of that money because he was, <laughs> he was playing a very fast strategy. He was spending it faster than he brought it in. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go on the phone now to Torres in Fort Worth. Hi, Torres. Hi, yes. Uh, this is a, a great uh, program this morning. Uh, I find this extremely interesting. And uh, I was just uh, had a question. Um, I was wondering, have you attributed any of these ideas or characteristics when it comes to depression? Because I, I, I have noticed that um, people lose their inhibitions or, or, their, or their ability to to hold back impulses when it comes to depression. I'm wondering, did, did you notice this also, or, or, or did you see any kind of research like that? That's a good question, actually. I'm afraid I don't have a great answer for it. Depression is something that I would actually expect people to become more careful that when people are depressed, what that basically is is your body telling you the environment is not providing a lot of resources for you or whatever you've been doing so far doesn't seem to be working out. And so maybe kind of hold yourself back 
and don't do dangerous things, kind of, you know, stay home, don't get up, okay, don't go out and, and take various risks. In fact, there's something, uh, there's some physiological parallels between human depression and like bare hibernation, uh, mm. that basically shutting down the system uh, is what animals and humans do when they feel like there isn't much hope out there. My guest is Douglas T. Kenrick. He's professor of psychology at Arizona State University and co-author, along with Vladas Griskevichus, uh, of the new book, The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. Welcome back to the conversation in a couple of minutes. You can join us by emailing think at kera.org or calling 1-800-933-5372. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program, accepting applications for this January to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu MLS. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is Douglas T. Kenrick. He's professor of psychology at Arizona State University and co-author of the new book, The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. Join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. So, Doug, talk a little more, if you would, about how our environment can play into which sub-self comes out on top when a particular situation puts two or more of them into competition. So, uh, typically, only one sub-self can be in the driver's seat. And so, uh, what's probably there's probably a, a, a set of priorities. We've, in fact, in the book... You remember Maslow's old pyramid of needs mm -hmm. from introductory psychology with, uh, you know, self-actualization at the top and basic biological needs at the bottom. Uh, what we presume is that, in fact, there is also a hierarchy. We, we think Maslow was right about some things. There's a hierarchy of these different uh, evolutionary motives in our lives, and some of them are going to take precedence over others. So feeding yourself, keeping yourself uh you know, uh, from freezing to death, those are going to be extremely high priorities. They're going to trump doing something like finding a mate. In fact, you'll do a lot of risky things if you're, if you're starving to death. Uh, then after that, you're going to start to become careful about getting, you know, attacked by other people. Uh, and then finally, at the high, you know, at higher levels, you start to be concerned about finding friends. These things also unfold developmentally in more or less the same order. Then you think about gaining some status with those friends, uh, I know that my I have a son who's now nine years old, and when he was four years old, he didn't care about friends at all. Then he suddenly started to care about friends, but he didn't care what they thought of him, whether they respected him. Now he's very concerned with what they think about him. Uh, in a couple of years, I'm going to predict, because I have an older son, and I know how this works out, he's going to start to become interested in mate acquisition. Now he could care less. He just wants to play with the boys. Hmm. Uh, and basically, those motives... Uh, they under unfold developmentally. You can't worry about keeping a mate until you've found a mate, and then you're not going to worry about taking care of children until you've at least found a mate, okay? Uh, and uh, we think that these things are more or less... Uh, only one of them is going to be active at any given time, and the ones at the bottom are pretty much going to trump, although probably the one at the very top, which is taking care of your offspring, 
that might trump a lot of the other ones. When there's a when your kid is in danger, uh, all of a sudden it's now you're back at that level one, that most basic kind of motivation. Uh, and so, how do these things get triggered? Well, they get triggered either by you're feeling deprived for some of these things if you hadn't eaten for a long period of time, uh, or if you haven't had any if, ha- haven't had any respect for a while. Uh, if you've just gotten a lot of respect, if you've gone, I know when I give a talk at a conference, lots of people come up afterwards and say, oh, that's a great talk. And after a while, it's like, okay, okay, I've had enough uh, praise. Now you can insult me now and I'm <laughs> fine. Uh, but uh, so there's some deprivation factor that contributes to which motive is active and also what's going on in the environment. You're not going to be thinking about mate acquisition uh, if you, you know, have, uh, you know, your current mate uh, around with you, for example. Usually you shouldn't be if you want to, if you want to maintain <laughs> that mate. And so, uh, so what's going on in the environment can, can trigger these things. And also, again, what's going on um, in your, uh, your developmental in your life. One, one of the things, I think a practical part of sort of thinking about these things, thinking about these little different evolved selves that we have inside of our head, it can have a practical implication. Because partially, uh, those things can get exploited. Some people can kind of understand these things, like people that are really good at kind of sales or people that are trying to get you to join a cult or something like that. They know how to activate the right motivational subself in you. So uh, a famous example is Bernard Madoff, who bilked people for, I think, billions of dollars. And the way he did it was he basically appealed to other members. He was a, an active member of the Jewish community. He was financially well-respected. He'd been something like a head of the New York stock market, a very high prestigious position. He was highly trusted. And he actually went to other Jewish community organizations and basically exploited their tendency to think of him as, well, a fellow tribal member, somebody who I can trust, and got the got these folks to give, you know, millions and millions of dollars to him, which they subsequently lost. Uh, One of the other things that people do, well, we were talking before about the going to Las Vegas and the beautiful waitresses who bring you free drinks. Um, I believe that sometimes we can say to ourselves, you know, I don't care. care. I'm in Las Vegas, what the heck? But uh, on the other hand, sometimes when you're about to make an important decision about buying a car, for example, you should watch out that the salesperson isn't trying to activate the wrong motive. I, I once went for, to buy a car and a guy says to me, I'm of Irish descent, which when you grew up in New York, that matters, what, whether you're Irish or Italian or what background you're from. And he starts playing on the kind of fellow Irishman thing to me. Uh, and then sometimes you'll go and a salesperson will be an attractive member of the opposite sex and they're kind of flirting with you a little bit. Well, you want to watch yourself under those. If you're making a financial decision, you don't want the wrong sub-self to make that decision. What we recommend actually that people kind of keep a little mental Rolodex of <laughs> important people in your life that are associated with each of these motives. So a, a, a classic example of this is Martin Luther King, who... People thought, well, was he inconsistent or consistent? Well, he was actually a normal person, but he was offered lots of mating opportunities. He was on the road. He was an attractive guy. He was a charming speaker. Uh, and yet he felt terribly guilty about all his, his famous affairs. If Martin had kept a little mental picture of his young child in his head and brought that to, to mind when he was tempted to, to stray, it might have kept him from having to feel the guilt that he felt later. And then, in fact, getting himself in trouble where the FBI had the dope on him, for example. 
1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's go next to Brandon in Las Colinas. Hey, Brandon. Hey, guys. Uh, I had a quick question for Doug in relation to, uh, you say once uh, in human behavior, once you've acquired a mate, the males become more uh, or less aggressive and maybe the women become a little more risky in their behavior. And I was wondering if it's because I've, I've read... Uh, uh, I guess like on Wikipedia and other sources that women are hypergamous or they go for the higher status mate. So if they've already acquired a mate, is it in their best interest to get, if they have access to better genes and they're already in a stable situation, they can go ahead and acquire that. And, you know, when, when paternity is kind of a just assumed, you know, uh, legitimate, it's actually a pretty good mating strategy on the female's end. Okay, so you're bringing up a very controversial and, and interesting point that women, the, the traditional presumption is that, well, men are uh, polygamous and women are monogamous. And in fact, in reality, men couldn't be polygamous if women were always monogamous. And there are these interesting findings that suggest that when women are ovulating, for example, and most likely to become pregnant, they're more likely to look at that George Clooney guy. And that's particularly true if they're not connected to a George Clooney type guy. And so one of the things that, that, uh, that you're suggesting here is that maybe when a woman's in a mating arrangement, she's more free to kind of explore other possibilities. Now, there's a little danger of that, though. Men are notoriously extremely jealous. One of the major causes of homicide around the world is male jealousy. It's not the, it's not the major one. The other one is sort of males competing with one another. But uh, so it can be extremely dangerous. One other possibility a more benign possibility is that maybe women in mating relationships just feel more financially secure. And because women aren't being judged as mates by the amount of money that they bring in, once a woman's gotten a long-term relationship with a guy who she thinks is predictable, then she's going to go and take more risks financially. Now, that's an empirically testable question, and we're at, at this point. You, you, I liked your suggestion because at this point, that your suggestion is one of the possible alternative hypotheses that we are investigating for why women get risky when they're in relationships. So I like the question. How do our standards change depending on whether we sort of know going into it that this is a one-night stand as compared with being attracted to somebody and thinking there could be something here for the long term? So we've done, actually, research on this. We uh, asked people, what, do you, what are your standards uh, for various kinds of relationships? For example, you're going to have a one-night stand with somebody. You'll never see them again. No one will ever know about it. What's the minimal level of intelligence or, or wealth or whatever else that you'd be interested in? Then we ask, well, you're going to be in a long-term relationship with this person. Maybe you're going to marry them. And what we find is that the standards vary depending upon which relationship you're thinking about and whether or not you're a man or a woman. So both men and women, when they're thinking about long-term partners, they want a lot. They want somebody who's intelligent, who's someone who's reliable, someone who's nice. Uh, there's a, a few differences. Women are a little bit more concerned with status and wealth than, than men are, typically. But now let's think about the one-night stand. What do people want? Well, both sexes now want somebody good-looking. The women want the George Clooney, the guys want Jennifer Lopez. But uh, what it turns out is that women are much less likely to even want to go for that guy, even a very desirable guy. If it's a one-night stand and they know it's a one-night stand, women's standards go way up. They want a guy who's much better than, more, more intelligent, more charming, 
better than than uh, normal. On men's side, however, things get kind of sad. The men's standards drop down to the floor. A man, <laughs> if he's offered a one-night stand, he, it does not have to be with Jennifer Lopez, uh, or it doesn't have to be with some a woman with a PhD or a woman who's charming. And it just has to be there's this classic study that was done in Florida where people walked up to strangers. It's very controversial because people don't like to accept the findings of it, but it's pretty vivid. They walk up to someone on campus and say, excuse me, I've seen you around campus. I find you attractive. Would you like to go to my room or go on a date with me or go to bed with me? Well, when it comes to going on a date, half the men and the women both said yes. So these people were charming and nice who were, in the, who were conducting this experiment, I reckon. But Something very different happened when it came to, would you go to bed with me? The same guy that a woman would have gone on a date with, he asked her to go to bed with him, zero percent. They did it twice over a 10-year period, and they found zero both times. The women just say, no, that's ridiculous. Get away from me or I'll call the campus police. Men say, they're actually, they go up. They're more <laughs> likely to say yes to go to bed with the woman than they are to, uh, to go on a date with her. And even if they say no, they apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. I just got engaged. I really shouldn't. That sort of thing. Well, I guess inherently there is, no matter what, there is more risk for a woman in a one-night stand situation than for a man. Yes. Yes. Very, it's, it's a, it can, from a biological perspective, a woman can become just as pregnant from a one-night stand as she can from a long-term marriage. Uh, whereas from a guy's perspective, if it's a one-night stand, then his investment is very low. So, Doug, do you think when, when viewed from this context of evolution, is it fair to say that economics is irrational? Economics is irrational. Uh, in terms I'm of, not quite sure. Well, in terms of really explaining uh, how we are benefited by certain choices, we always sort of look at the dollars and cents, and it's pretty clear um, when we make choices that don't seem to benefit us, and, and we do strange things with our money and our time. But if you look from an evolutionary perspective, um, some of the sort of rules of pure economics don't always make sense for our situations. Right. The money side of it, I, from a biological perspective, everything's economic because it's all about your investment of your time and your scarce resources. But when it comes to sort of money making decisions, acting like a Wall Street economist, that can be pretty irrational. If you're dealing with your friends and your family members, you don't want to. It's a, part of the reason why a lot of people are angry at the Wall Street folks is because they're, they're always thinking dollars and cents, what's in it from moi? Well, it turns out that we don't trust other people. We don't want them in our tribe when they're always asking what's in it from moi and they're always you know, thinking about you know, themselves as opposed to you. A, a great counterexample of, of how to flip that over is like Southwest Airlines where instead of treating people like strangers and saying, all right, that's it, you're late for the plane, you know, da, da, screw you, right? They tried to treat people like family members. They, in fact, they tried to treat their employees like family members. They, they have, you know, uh, apparently they had pajamas at work day. Uh, <laughs> when you got on a Southwest Airlines, you're still to the case. We get on a Southwest Airlines flight, they make a joke. On some airlines, they never joke about anything. <laughs> Southwest, they're joking, they're friendly. They treat you like you're a family member. And it turns out that when all of the airlines were having these terrible times and going out of business around back around 2001, uh, Southwest Airlines actually did quite well. In fact, didn't have to lay off. They didn't, they didn't lay off their employees. They actually asked them all to co join together and take a slight cut in pay, which they did, and they survived. So you can do it. You can do the reverse. Instead of tr treating your friends and family like strangers on Wall Street, it's a 
great idea to treat the people you do business with like family members. Douglas T. Kenrick is professor of psychology at Arizona State University and co-author of the new book, The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. Doug, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for making time for us this hour. Great. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Shelley Canavy. Our podcast is produced by Christine McConnell. We had help on the phones today from Christina Martinez. We had um, Jeff Whittington as executive producer. You can learn more about the show, find out about upcoming programs, and download the podcast free at kera.org slash think. You can send any comments, questions, or suggestions to think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.